And uh, Colossians one. Okay, we're live. It says you can check that if you want, but I know we are. Okay, let's see here. So here, here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna start because you're sitting there and you didn't plan. I didn't tell you in time, so we're just gonna read Psalm 119, verse 49, Zayim, and it's remember the word to your servant upon which you have caused me to hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, for your word has given me life. The proud have me in great derision, yet I do not turn aside from your law. I remembered your judgments of old, O Lord, and have comforted myself. Indignation has taken hold of me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and I keep your law. This has become mine because I kept your precepts. Okay, let's see. We got that. Next thing we want to do is pull out some prayer requests. I'm going to put this over here. So I'm not going to need that again. Prayer requests. Um, uh, we have Gr uh, Greg and Andy. They're going to be yeah. leaving soon to go up north. Uh, I think it's the 10th of July. But uh, keep them in prayer because this is going to be, uh, they're going to tinker with their ticker. And we want to make sure that uh, uh, everything goes well with that. Um, so uh, Andy is, and Greg is obviously just taking her up. But um, uh, there's a lady in Pakistan, a guy that um, was emailing me uh, about Jesus. And finally, he made a commitment to Christ, and we sent him a Bible. And uh, uh, my friend in the U.K. sent him a Bible. Because if we send it from here, the shipping costs more than the Bible itself. But he sent one, which I appreciate. Daniel did that. He's the guy that does the uh, reading of the Acts commentary every day. He sent it off to him. And uh, now Nazir wants his wife, Shabiran, to know Jesus. And so he's showing her the videos and he's explaining things to her, but have her in prayer, Shabiran. And uh, she's Hindu and they have 300 million gods in Hinduism. So is everything okay? Yeah. Okay. Um, and then uh, we have uh, Lou Allen had a heart attack last Wednesday and bypass surgery on Thursday. And I have not gotten reports since then, so we want to keep him in prayer. And then Emma, Emma at the hospital. I went and saw her today when I was walking down the hall to go to her room. Three people were with her. She had a cane and she was walking. I, I couldn't wow. believe it. She still has no feeling wow. on her right side but she's able to walk and at least control her leg and her right arm, she can now move across her body that far. So, I mean, there's unbelievable progress. And I don't want to give anything personal away, but I will say that uh, somebody either in the church or online in the church uh, offered to help with her expenses. And I'd never even thought of that, but you know, she's still got rent expenses. She's got the, uh, you know, the electric and all the bills that still have to be paid. And uh, so I talked to the mother, is that okay? And she almost broke into tears. She was just like, who would even think this? And uh, so uh, I hooked them up. And uh, I, you know, I'm not asking people to do something uh, extra, but if anybody wants to help with that, it's something that never even dawned on me. I mean, this girl works at a deli and probably makes, what, 12 bucks an hour or something. Uh, she's got a car, she's got all these things. And you know, now everything is being depleted that uh, so just keep uh, uh, Emma, in, at least in your prayers, and thankful to the Lord for her progress, but also that uh, somebody is willing to help in that regard, and you know maybe other people will help her as well. Um, uh, and then finally, Amy Oriente. Some of you know Paul and Amy. They came down here. Uh, he's from here. 
long, long time friend of mine, and they played guitar for us one time. Well, uh, you guys might have been here. Great job they did. Anyway, um, uh, Amy is going in for stones in her bile duct on the 14th, and uh, this is something that has been happening for like a year. She's had terrible, terrible pains, and they could not find out what it is, and finally they put her in an MRI and found that that's what it is, and so uh, we're going to ask for prayers for her as well. And Burke's got something? My older sister. Your fell, older sister. Fell and broke her hip. Oh, no. Split her head open and had to put staples in. Broke her hip, split her head open, and what's her name? Rita. 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 All right. Well, we'll have her in prayer as well. She came out of surgery yesterday at 5 o'clock. Okay. And they repaired her hip? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what? That used to be something was terminal. You broke your hip and the rest of your life was in bed. And then you, you know, and now, literally, I know one person that had a hip operation in the morning was walking three hours later. So thank God for the, the time that we're in. But yes, we'll keep Rita in prayer as well. So those are some prayer requests. I'm sure I've got more that uh, I don't have written down. And then um, I got one more thing. I know we're already long on an introduction, but I want to read this to you. Um, this is a guy that um, uh, is in the federal prison system, and um, he uh, is in uh, uh, Florida, Coleman, Florida, okay? And uh, his mother attends online, and she got him watching as well. And I got something in the mail, and he said I could share it. So I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, but I'll read some of this. Uh, I picked this card because mom told me some time ago about your morning routine of waking up to watch the sunrise while you talk to the Lord. Thus, I thought this was spot on. I hope that everything, every time you look at it, it is a reminder, as if you need one, to speak to him. Praying is the part of fellowship with the Lord that I struggle with the most. And I wrote him back yesterday. I gave him a letter in the mail, and I said that's where I struggle the most, too. I find it very hard to just have concentrated prayer, so I just talk to the Lord all day instead. I have no problem with the Bible study part. The more intellectual stuff is right up my alley, and once again, that's how I feel. Um, prayer, however, is much more intimate. I have to force myself into it oftentimes. Intimacy has been a real struggle my whole life, and he says, but I digress. He said, um, uh, this card is about you and then he said actually it's about the father i mean i am penning this on father's day pastor you sir are a father of sorts uh to your congregation and to me and so happy belated father's day and please continue to preach the gospel and be anyway um uh, your sermons reach into the Federal Bureau of Prison via my mom. I was especially moved by a sermon you did on or thereabouts last week of February. It was out of Acts. At the very end, you had a prayer that spoke of the Heavenly Father taking us to glory. You spoke of people around the world in seemingly impossible states of confinement. Well, this guy would know in seemingly uh, uh, confinement or simply leading their lives in a normal way and yet they will be taken out and brought to you. What a wonderful thought. I look forward to, yeah, he goes into some greetings to me and that, but um, uh, remember that there are people in prison that love the Lord and they are there for whatever reason. And uh, some of them knew the Lord before they went in. Some of them met the Lord while they were in, but uh, uh, we don't want to forget to pray for the people in prison as well. And uh, especially when, you know, some people, you know, and I don't know if this is his state or not, but some people, need to be out of society. They, they just are not properly in tune with society. But when they're in prison, they are more attuned to the Lord. They're more in tune to what 
their life should be. And that may be a, a hard thing for us to understand because most people want to be out, but some people have very difficult lives facing reality. And like I said, I don't know his situation. All I can tell you is that uh, that's a wonderful thing that he thought of me on Father's Day, and I'm just really honored by that. And he said I could share that. And well, as I was reading, I was thinking of Paul being in prison. And, you know, keep these people in prayer. Wonderful. I just want to thank him so much for that. Um, we'll go ahead and go to Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to pray for all the people that we just mentioned. We're very grateful that Burke's sister is okay and she's not uh, more damaged than she was. And we pray that the uh, healing will be a success and that she will have no infection or anything like that set in. And Lord, we're so thankful for Emma. It's just, just so good to see the smile on her face and to, to know that she's recovering. And there are other people in her ward that are young that have had the same thing. And so we want to lift them up because their lives are uh, going to be challenging their young lives are going to be challenging. And Lord, Greg and Andy are on their way uh, up north soon. We pray for them and all the other people that I mentioned a moment ago. Lord, we lift them up and anybody else that uh, we've not mentioned here that uh, has needs, we would pray for them. Thank you for getting a home for Sergio and Rhoda so they're settled in. And Lord, we're just so grateful to you for your hand upon us. Thank you so much. And because it's my anniversary week, I want to thank you for my wife. Thank you that you've given me a wonderful wife that can put up with me for 38 years. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We ask that you bless this new book study, the book of Colossians. And uh, we just dedicate our time to you and pray that what is said will be in accord with your will. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, I see Miss Garrett showed up. Hello, Miss Garrett. How are you? Good to see you. Do I need to um, tell people that I'm not Jim? You're, uh, uh, Jim is not reading the Bible today. He was coming in today. He said he might be here, um, but apparently they either didn't make it on time or their flight got canceled or something. So uh, we have a non-Jim sitting in Jim's seat today. Temporarily. Temporarily sitting in here. Um, today is the 30th of June. This is the last day of June 2022 that you will ever live in all of your life. So we're going to read this, and we're going to see what it has to say about 30 June. If you can't change your husband, God can. Robert E. Lee was born in Virginia in 1807, son of Light Horse Harry Lee, a famous Revolutionary War cavalry officer and governor of Virginia. In 1829, Robert graduated from West Point, second in his class, and was commissioned a second lieutenant in the Army. Mary Custis was the great-granddaughter of George Washington, Lee's hero, and grew up in Arlington House, which still stands today on a hill in Arlington National Cemetery overlooking Washington, D.C. The Lee and Custis families were distantly related, and Robert spent <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> much time at Arlington as he was growing up. He fell in love with Mary, the only child in the Custis family, and they chose June 30th, 1831 for their wedding day. Mary had recently put her trust in Christ, and as their wedding date approached, she was especially concerned about Robert's spiritual condition. Not too long before, she had struggled with her own sinfulness until, in her own words, I was made to feel willing to give all up for God, even my life if God should require it. Thereafter, she said, came joy and peace. In her letters to Robert, she described praying ceaselessly that God may turn your heart to him. But unfortunately, Robert brought no such change of heart to their wedding. He half-jokingly said that the sermon in the wedding service made him feel as if 
his death warrant was being read. It wasn't until 17 years later, after hearing a remarkable sermon in Baltimore, that Lee found the blessed assurance for which Mary yearned for him. He told her that he was now certain that only surrender to God was the answer to the problems of life. It thrilled Mary to hear him tell her, my trust is in the mercy of Christ. When Civil War broke out, President Lincoln offered Lee the field command of the Union Army. However, though Lee opposed both slavery and secession and had freed all the slaves he had inherited, his loyalty was first and foremost to his beloved Virginia. He concluded that Virginia was fighting for the very freedom for which the Revolutionary War fought and therefore joined the Confederate cause, seeing it as a war of independence. June 30, 1864, their 33rd wedding anniversary, found Robert E. Lee defending Petersburg, Virginia as the general of the Army of, the, of Northern Virginia at the beginning of what was to be a nine-month siege by Grant's Union Army. He took time to write his dear wife, who had been quite sick that summer, an anniversary note. I was very glad to receive your letter yesterday and to hear that you were better. I trust that you will continue to improve and soon be as well as usual. God grant that you may be entirely restored in his own good time. Do you recollect what a happy day 33 years ago this was? How many hopes and pleasures it gave birth to? God has been merciful and kind to us, and how thankless and sinful I have been. I pray that he may continue his mercies and blessings to us and give us a little peace and rest together in this world. And finally, gather us and all he has given us around his throne in the world to come. The president has just arrived. I must bring my letter to a close. Are you praying for members of your family who have never put their trust in Jesus? Mary Lee prayed for 17 years before her husband finally trusted in Jesus Christ as a savior. So don't lose heart. In the same way, you wives must accept the authority of your husbands, even those who refuse to accept the good news. Your godly lives will speak to them better than any words. They will be won over by watching your pure, godly behavior. That's 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2. Okay, so we're going to get into the book of Colossians, but before we do, I want to introduce two wonderful people that walked in here a minute ago. It's Tom and Karen. Is that right? Yeah. Susan and Ken. Oh, I, Tom, I'm, I'm sorry. Ken and Susan. <laughs> you know, I should have gotten that. My brain, went, when we started talking about Tom... I inserted that in my head. And then, of course, I should have remembered Susan because that's my mother's name. So, Ken and Susan. I apologize about that. I, I have a very short memory. Uh, if I don't write everything down, it goes right in, in one year and out the other. So, Ken and Susan, who are from Georgia. And they uh, are, uh, no, you're friends with? Okay, you're friends with a couple of wonderful people that I've known for years, and they've come to the church a few times as Chris and Adrian. And uh, so when you get back, you tell them I say hi, okay? Good. Now, how long are you going to be in Sarasota? Not even tomorrow. We're building a house down here. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Wow. Where in Sarasota or in Florida? Oh, wow. Oh, my goodness gracious. Well, good deal. I, I hope the, well, I guess Georgia gets pretty humid and hot too. It just doesn't last as long. Here it's, it starts in about May and it can go through October and even into November. So, but yeah, there are yeah, mom says January and February and there are years where we get very little cool. But 
it's never hot that time of year. It's just not cool. So anyway, um, wonderful to have you. Thank you for coming today and uh, surprising us. And okay, we're going to get into the book of Colossians and we're going to have Sergio, Sergio Boitanko, Bible scholar extraordinaire, um, start us by reading Colossians 1, 1. And what version are you using so the people know? NASB. The NASB. 1995. 1995. How you doing today? Good to see you. Okay, so 1995 NASB, which is different. The NASB changes quite a bit if yeah. you go between the different uh, years, the 77, the uh, 95, the 2000. They, they really do have differences. Yeah, I've noticed the the one with uh, 95 says brethren. The 2000 says uh, brothers and sisters. That's right. That's like and I, I, that's why I don't like and I won't read that newer one because oh, okay. they are caving to political correctness. Right. There's no reason to do that. The NIV did that and after about uh, 2001 I won't read any of the newer versions because there's no reason to do it. Brethren includes women. If there's one man in the room then it is addressed to the brethren. But it is, yeah. is inclusive just as the English language was almost forever. I mean up until you know 10-15 years ago if you said it, something in the masculine it just included the women. There's, Hebrew is still the same today and Arabic. Yep. Yep, that's correct. But now uh, they're they're changing these things simply to be politically correct and sell more Bibles, and I won't have any part of it. That's just like uh, just it just takes one word, such as in the uh, in the beginning was a God. Yeah, well, that would be the Jehovah's Witnesses. That's right. That's the New World Translation. The whole thing falls That's right. That's exactly right. Okay, so here we are in Colossians one, verse one. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Okay, that's almost identical. As a matter of fact, I think it is. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So, we didn't need to have you read that one after all. Uh, yeah, very rarely are they identical, but that one is just fine. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the book of Colossians. It is comprised of 95 verses, and so it will take us one day at a time. This is when I typed this, okay? This was my typed commentary. So it'll take uh, one day at a time, just as you rise in the morning, about three months to analyze it because I would type one commentary a day and put it out online and then the next day another one. And right now we're doing that with the book of Acts and we're up to Acts 8. And it's been, I don't know, it's probably been um, three quarters of a year. It's gonna take over two years, almost three years to get through Acts. but. Um, boy, am I enjoying Acts. Wow. If, if you're not reading or listening to or watching the Acts commentaries, because there are all kinds of uh, uh, options. We've got, uh, I post it, okay, online. You can read it if you'd like to read. Uh, Daniel in the United Kingdom does a um, uh, reading of it in that great British accent, okay? And so he does that, and so it's posted every day at 12 o'clock at night, our time. And uh, that's available. You can listen to the Acts commentary each day, one verse at a time. And then also, uh, Joey, uh, she has a channel on YouTube, which she, it's Discern the Bible. And she just said, can I do this? Can I use your commentaries? Yeah. So she has it, I send her the typed commentary and she does a lot for the church. She checks everything I do. She just, she's always correcting me with things. She's very, very precise, but she, uh, uh, she puts it on YouTube and it scrolls and you read it at whatever speed you want and you can have sound with it or no sound but she has music playing she has sometimes thunderstorms playing in the background it's very nice that's a third option and then Wade 
who's in Washington, uh, he also posts these two um, sermon audio. So you can go there and get the sermon audio uh, edition of it. But there you go. There are all kinds of options. There's no reason why you shouldn't be in the book of Acts right now because it is, it is the pivotal book of the New Testament to understanding what happens from Christ's work. It is the pivotal book. And it is a book, I'll give this and then we'll get into Colossians. It is a book not to be taken prescriptively. It is a descriptive account of what happened. And that's where I would say that 95% of all error in the church is based on a prescriptive reading of Acts. In other words, they use it as this is being prescribed. And it, none of it is. None of the book of Acts is being prescribed. It is a descriptive account telling us what happened. Okay, and when you use Acts in a prescriptive manner, you will, not maybe, you will have incorrect doctrine. So just understand, is it prescribing something? Is it describing? And what is the context? Context, context, context. And the book of Acts, if you stick to those three principles, your doctrine will be far, far better than if you try to take and say, well, Acts 2 says repent and believe and uh, you'll be baptized, okay? Uh, repent and baptized repent and be baptized and you uh, uh, will be saved, okay? Acts 2.38. He's not speaking to the Gentiles there. He's speaking to the Jews who had just crucified Jesus. And when he says repent, that means change your mind. You're saying he's not the Messiah. You need to change your mind that he is the Messiah. Repent, be baptized, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what he says. Anyway, so, um, and then Acts uh, eight that we're in right now just had the people in Samaria the Samaritans believed and they were baptized and they didn't receive the Holy Spirit until Peter and John show up and put their hands on them okay and then the next thing that happens is the Ethiopian eunuch which I'm typing right now which will be released in a couple days or maybe we're already releasing the Ethiopian eunuch because I type them 10 days in advance anyway he receives Jesus, is baptized, and says nothing of the Holy Spirit, and then he goes back to Ethiopia. And then in Acts chapter 10, the people are listening to Peter speak, and what happens? The Holy Spirit falls down on him while he's speaking, and then they're baptized. If you take Acts in a prescriptive manner, you're going to have confused theology, because there's four different accounts, and there are more after that, where Paul is speaking to other people, and none of them match. So where do you get your doctrine on the Holy Spirit, on uh, baptism on those other things you get it from the epistles don't get it from the book of Acts please remember that anyway we'll go on um, uh, Colossians 1 1 and welcome to the book of Colossians yes I hope you will be blessed as each day unfolds or each Bible study unfolds with new insights into this beautiful epistle from the mind of God and through the hand of Paul the Apostle to the Gentiles he begins by introducing himself right off the bat. The letter bears his name, and though the authenticity of his authorship has been challenged in this, and, and as in almost all of his letters, there is no valid reason to suggest that he is not the true author. Colossians especially, there are a couple of Paul's letters that are highly challenged. Colossians is one of them. Okay, there's no reason at all to not accept his authorship. Um, when I first met the Lord, within just a very short time of that, I was reading about the book of Colossians, 
and the guy did a marvelous, marvelous analysis of the book. And it wasn't so formal as mine are. It was just a great analysis, and uh, he defended right to the T why Paul is the author. And so I'm glad I read that at the beginning because if I had read some other thing, this well, this wasn't really written by Paul. You never know where you're going to be when you're taught something right off the bat. But it was a marvelous uh, analysis, and I can tell you that Paul is the author. He is, if for no other reason, then God is not going to make a mistake in his word. So if you believe that this is God's word, and it is a sign to Paul as the apostle that wrote it, then you know that Paul is the apostle who wrote it, okay? God's not going to include something that is an error in his word. But despite that, even the context, the words that are used, the number of words that are used between other epistles that come out to these beautiful patterns all fit in with the book of Colossians as well. No doubt he wrote it. Not at all. Okay, so um, he is the apostle to the Gentiles, and the letter is written to a Gentile-led church. Okay, all of the churches that Paul wrote to, all of them are Gentile churches. Okay, they are from the sons of anybody? Still. Huh? The sons of Japheth. Japheth is the line who all of those, uh, Corinth and Galatian, all of them are from the line of Japheth, the son of Noah. Okay, um, and we know that. And then when you go into the book of Revelation, you get hyper-dispensationalists which say that, oh, those letters are written to um, uh, the Jews of the end times. And then it mentions a bunch of names that are the same names as in Paul's epistles, meaning that they are Gentile-led churches. Very confused theology. Be careful not to get stuck in hyper-dispensationalism. They, they are heretical because they teach that there are two Gospels. They are also heretical um, because they say in the Old Testament that people were saved by works of the law, okay? And that's one of their principal points is that you were saved differently at other times in redemptive history. The answer to that is absolutely not. What is it that tells you 100% that the people under the law were saved by grace? The Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. That's what I was looking for, the Day of could not be saved apart from the Day of Atonement, and the Day of Atonement was a day of faith. I was looking for the day and then the answer, so uh, you both got that right, but um, that is 100% correct. If they did not have faith, if they did not abase themselves and uh, demonstrate faith on the Day of Atonement, there was no atonement for their sins, okay? 100% it is a mark of absolute heresy what hyper-dispensationalists teach, the way they handle the Bible. Please be very careful. Dispensationalism is correct. The Bible teaches dispensations, okay? Um, and that's one thing we can talk about right now while we're in Colossians because it's part of the dispensational model is that um, people will use this argument. They're, you're going to hear this if you study it enough, is that uh, dispensations was introduced much later, okay? And it's new, and therefore it's not correct. All right, and usually people that say that are Calvinists. Calvin predates John Darby by about a couple hundred years. It, there's not really that much difference in a 2,000 year span, okay? Calvinism comes along and that's okay, but dispensationalism isn't. No, dispensationalism is actually what the Bible teaches. Um, Calvinism is not what the Bible teaches. But if you take some of the precepts that Calvin held to and others, uh, covenantalism, 
I have no problem with covenantalism. People uh, say that that's what the Bible teaches, and it does. God had a covenant with Noah. He had, I'm sorry, Adam. He had a covenant with Noah. He had a covenant with Abraham. He had a covenant with the people of Israel through Moses. Okay, he has a new covenant in Christ's blood. I have no problem with people teaching covenants, but that is not the end of what God is doing. It is a part of what God is doing. Okay, dispensations are a part of how God is revealing himself in history. And just because it came later, which it didn't, and I'll explain that in a minute, does not mean that it is wrong. Okay, we're in Joshua now. Okay, we're in Joshua. I am up to Joshua 6 starting next Monday. I've finished through chapter 5. And I can tell you that in Joshua 3, 4, and 5, I have some things that I will say about pictures, typology of Christ, that I have not found anywhere else. Okay, now I'm not saying that I'm the only one that's come to those conclusions, but if I am the only one that has come to those conclusions about the typology, does that make them wrong? No, it just means that God isn't ready to reveal those things. It's like finding a chiasm that nobody's ever found before. Sergio's found a couple of them. Is it wrong? Is, is that not a valid thing in the Bible if he found it in 2017? No, it just means that the Lord finally revealed that chiasm in the Bible in 2017. Okay, so uh, that is a what's known as a genetic fallacy. Older is better, new isn't, or etc. Okay, or it could be a genetic and mean other things as well. But um, uh, don't listen to people when they give you that argument. Here's another one you're going to hear. It has nothing to do with Colossians, so I am deviating, but it's the same precept. Um, the rapture was never taught also, along with dispensationalism, until John Darby. Does anybody know what the problem with that is? You should, because you typed a letter to somebody on it just recently. And I included it. I said, you want to add this in? Okay? That's not true that John Darby is the first person to mention the rapture. Paul is. Paul mentions the rapture. Just because somebody read it wrong for the past 1,800 years doesn't mean that it's not a valid doctrine, okay? The Lord was not ready to reveal the fact that Israel is actually still in God's good graces. And so the church believed that they had replaced Israel. And once you realize that that's not true, that the Zionist movement bringing the Jews back into the land has a purpose, which some people did know this, okay? I tell you this right now is that uh, Adam Clark said in his commentary on the book of Amos that this says that the Jews will be back in the land someday and they will not be uprooted. And he said, either this is the word of God and that's true, or this is not the word of God. And he said that hundreds of years ago. John Gill said the same thing hundreds of years ago. So it's not true that everybody was wrong, but the church as a whole did not understand that the Jews would someday be back in the land. When the Jews were coming back, all of a sudden people have to reevaluate the theology that has been presented. The church can't have replaced Israel if these Jews are to be back in the land. Does everybody see how all of this fits together? And so the book of Colossians is a part of it fitting together. It is fitting together so that we understand that this message to the Gentile people of the world will someday come to an end. And then there will be a change in that. How are you doing today? He next identifies his apostleship with the words, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He is a messenger of the Lord, having been called by him personally to perform this weighty duty, which has been so amazingly fruitful for the past 2,000 years. 
This is his one claim to the authority of writing a letter of doctrine to them. And it is with this authority that he thus writes. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ. I have the authority to write this, and therefore I am writing it. After this, he notes that his apostleship is by the will of God. This is the same phrase as is seen in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Philippians, and 2 Timothy. It is what further defines his calling and which affirms his authority. It is a note of humility that he was selected and therefore it was not of his own merits. Instead, it was by the sovereign decision of God that he is so designated an apostle. That happened when? Acts chapter... Oh, when Jesus... Uh, no. Nine. I'll read it again. You were sleeping and we had some, okay. It is also a note of humility that he was selected and therefore it was not of his own merits. Instead, it was by the sovereign decision of God that he is so designated an apostle. When was that stated in the Bible? Acts chapter nine. Okay. And not, I, I just, I was asking you to say what I just said. Okay. Acts chapter nine, Paul was given his calling. Let's go there right now so that we can see this. It's not uh, too much of a diversion here. It'll only take a minute. Acts chapter nine, it says here, um, uh, then Saul still breathing out threats. Oh, we're going to start this, man. I just typed today Acts 8, 39. Philip was, it says he was uh, carried away. How does it say it? Um, Acts, uh, the spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Okay, tomorrow I'll type the last verse of Acts chapter 8. Okay, does anybody know what the word is that was used when Philip was caught away? It's the same word that's used in 1 Thessalonians 4, harpazo. He was raptured away. That's exactly right. He was carried away. And then, of course, some of the scholars try to diminish that and say that he was in such a heated uh, spirit that he says, I got to go, and he just takes off. They try to diminish the miraculous. I'm telling you, look at all the instances of the word harpazo. It is always by force, and it is an external force. Okay? He was carried away immediately. And that's probably what would have converted all the people that were with the eunuch, because only the eunuch is mentioned. But when they saw this, you'd have a whole cohort cohort of people going back to Ethiopia and all of them testifying to what they saw. This is message came, this guy came and pronounced it. Next thing you know, he was just taken away. Okay. So anyway, uh, Acts 40 tomorrow. And then in Verse 9, 1, then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, here it is, his commission. Arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Okay, and then he uh, uh, gets his actual, that's the Lord telling him what to do, so that he will get the actual commission, which comes, uh, starting, we'll go to... Um, uh, We'll, we'll go to verse 11. Arise, go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. 
And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him, so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias, knowing better than the Lord, answered about this man, uh, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. So he's kind of like counseling the Lord, <laughs> which anyway, I always find that ironic. But, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine. This is going to be his commission, to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So there you go. Acts chapter 9 is where he got his commission. It's laid out there. Ananias does as he is told finally, and he goes and he puts his hand on him, and the scales come off Paul's eyes, and here we have Paul writing to the Colossians. So, grace to you, and peace from God our Father. Oh, wait, I'm reading the Bible and not my commentary. I was doing your part. Sorry about that. Um, okay, so um, it was God's sovereign decision that he so designated him an apostle. In his letter to the Romans, he gave a more formal declaration of his commission and in Galatians, the opening statement was considerably more direct and even abrupt. In other letters, the opening varies as well. The opening statement is given in each epistle to set the, set the tone for the rest of the letter. In Galatians, as I said, it was very abrupt. Why was he abrupt to the Galatians? Works. Works. They had fallen away from grace, and he was beside himself. Galatians... I got to tell you, I know I said this at the beginning of Galatians, and then I say it at the beginning of every letter. Oh, this is my favorite letter. This is my favorite book in the Bible. I really, really like Galatians. It, I, I don't want to put it above any other, but Galatians is the pivotal book in my life to understanding the grace of God in Christ. It is all about grace, and it is not anything about what we do ever, okay, ever. I will tell you this. I'm, I haven't finished it. I was going to bring it in, and I was going to uh, give you my critique of it um, very soon. I'm getting close to being done with the New Testament. But um, I read, uh, I've been reading the complete Jewish Bible. Okay, it's a Messianic Bible. Uh, they use a lot of terminology in there that is directed solely toward Jews. Okay, uh, one thing they do, which I'm not really keen on, but I understand why they do it, is that they take... Um, uh, Paul, and even after he becomes Saul, I'm sorry, they take Paul, who is Saul, and even after he becomes Paul, they still call him Saul, okay? And I'm not really happy with that because it's not what the Word of God says, but I understand why they do it. It's because they are trying to evangelize Jews, and if you put the name Paul in there, you've got a wall up immediately, okay? So I understand what they did. I wish they would have footnoted it and said, it actually says Paul here, but and because nobody reads footnotes, but at least you're giving the information, okay? Um, and they do other things like that. But one of the things, I've been happy with it so far, but when I got to Galatians, I think it's 4 verse 4. I, I was upset enough where I'm not going to recommend people read this Bible. I think it's 4 4. Let me see if I can find this. Um, uh, well, that's not the one I was looking for, but that is 4 4. Um, it's, uh, they're talking, um, let me think here. I just read it a couple days ago. Uh, it might be 1 4. No, it's, what is 6 4? Let me check. I, I'm sure it's a 4. And uh, let me see if I can find this really quickly. Um, anyway, what they do, instead of saying the law, they, they use the term a twisted version of the law. And that's not at all what the, the Bible says. It's not even close. 
Um, and what they have done is they have taken, and uh, you who have been estranged from Christ, you have fallen from grace. Let me, I just want to see if I can find this, and then I'll explain it. If I can't, um, that's fine. But um, he gave himself for us. That's 2-4. says, I'm sure it's 4-4. Four, four. Um, he was born of a woman, born, yeah. No. Anyway, yeah, he's born under the law, and it may be that verse, but the way that they say it, they don't say, yes, it was 4-4. He says, born under the law, okay? But what they do is they say he was born under a twisted version of the law. In other words, they're assigning what the Pharisees and the uh, leaders of Israel are doing as a corruption of the law. And that's not what this says, and that is not the intent at all. He was born under the law. The law can save nobody. And they're trying to say that this was a corrupt version, and I I can't say I understand why they did that, because you are actually changing the intent of what it says there. He was born under the law, and he, the only person that can fulfill that law, because he is God and because he has no sin of his own, came to fulfill the law. Not a corrupt, twisted version of the law, but the law of Moses. The law of Moses is no longer in effect. It is obsolete, it is annulled, it is set aside. With a caveat, the book of uh, Hebrews says that, and it is passing away. And it says it like it's still in effect in some way. And that is true. It is still in effect upon the Jewish people who have not come to him. The Israel is the only people on this planet that received the law of Moses. Nobody else did. It is binding on them until they come out of the law. Any individual Jew who comes to Christ now, that law is obsolete and null for them. But for the nation as a whole, they are still under that law, and that is why they are going through the tribulation period. And that is why two-thirds of them are going to die in the process, is because they are under the law. They need to come to Christ for his grace, okay? And so when they put that in there, they, something like a, a perverted or a corrupted or a twisted version of the law, I said, I'm not going to re recommend this to anybody because that cannot stand in the translation. That cannot. Other things, you know, you can go a little bit off and you can try to justify it, like I said about Paul and Saul, having wished that they had simply said uh, Paul in the footnotes. I didn't like that they didn't, but when I saw that, I, I, I will finish this version, but um, uh, man, the, the Word of God has to be handled properly, and but it has to be... Go ahead. Oh, sorry, but that doesn't mean that they can be saved under the law, right? Absolutely. Nobody can be saved under the law. Yeah, so Absolutely not. They need to come out of the law for yeah. salvation. Because there are some that say, well, because Israel still has the law, they can just John do that. That's dual covenantalism, and that is that is the biggest her heresy. That is what Paul argues against through all of Galatians, which is what got me to go to Galatians right now anyway. That is the largest heresy is to say that you can be saved by works. That, that's it, and that's what Galatians is telling us, and that is why Paul was so abrupt when he started the book of Galatians, and that's why he spent a whole chapter rebuking Peter. Peter that's right, the whole chapter, telling him, explaining what happened, setting it up, and then explaining what he said to him, and it continues on into the next chapter. This cannot stand. Uh, as uh, Burke said, who was it, um, the guy that you cited? about the ham sandwich and the pork chop? Oh, McGee. Oh, uh, Fernie McGee, apparently in his commentary says, well, Peter is out having pork chops with the Gentiles and then the Jews show up and he goes back and, you know, he's eating falafel only. So uh, I like that. It was a funny way of saying it, but here you go. But can somebody argue, Bacon. Can somebody argue that the Jews having the law today, if they have faith in the Day of Atonement, 
You didn't listen to last week's sermon, did you? <laughs> Acts, Acts 6, verse 9, I answered that. Okay. Acts 6, verse But they don't have a Day of Atonement, do they? No. No. They're not doing a Day of Atonement anyway, and they're going to find out that the temple sacrifices, when they do have a temple, aren't working. Yeah. Okay? So, but you have to argue that with them, and you have to be precise. That if the Day of Atonement, which was in last Sunday's sermon, um, if the Day of Atonement could save people, they would have had it one time, and then never again, because it would have been effectual. But it was ineffectual, and they had to do it year after year after year. And as it says in the book of Hebrews, the blood of bulls, bull, bulls and goats can never take away sins. Okay, So we need to be precise when we talk to people about this, because the largest obstacle to people being saved is law. It's legalism. We were talking about the Seventh-day Adventists. They uh, have now got a house, and they're going to be passing by the Seventh-day Adventists from time to time if they take one particular road. And you want to talk about working your way to heaven, go join the Seventh-day Adventists. It's all legalism. It's all, what do I have to do to merit God's favor? you got to be careful with that. Paul argues against it, and he says that, how does he say it? He says, we'll go there, and then we've got to get back into Colossians. We've got to finish at least one verse. I today. remember the sermon um, now, and I remember. Oh, okay, good, good. I knew you did. I, I just There's a lot of information in the Bible, and so I won't remember that sermon that I gave in three weeks. I will not remember any of it. There's just too much information. Okay, as a matter of fact, Maya has been posting Bible Bites of the Doctrine Sermons. And I've been sitting there, I've, no kidding, I was cleaning the bathrooms about an hour and a half ago thinking of one of the Bible bites that she posted about a week ago. And I said, I, I remember saying to the Lord, just two hours ago, I said, Lord, did I type that? I don't even remember having typed that. And I thought, isn't that insightful? And I, here, that's me speaking up there in that pulpit. And I'm thinking, I don't even, there's too much for the, bar, the brain to handle. And so you just have to keep reading the word every single day. Keep reading the word every day. But what does it Paul, Paul say? He says, um, um, uh, let me see if I can find it. He talks about it there. It, well, he says, um, uh, here it is right here, estranged. Um, uh, and I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised. Circumcision is a precept under the law. That he is a debtor to keep the whole law, you would become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. Now he says law. He's not saying circumcision. He's using that as the benchmark for the entire law of Moses. Okay, you have fallen from grace. Okay, he says it right there. You're, you're a debtor to the entire law if you observe the law. Now, that's not saying that you're not saved. That means that you have set aside grace, and if you want to please God from that point on, you have to observe the law perfectly, and it will never happen. And therefore, you get no rewards when you enter into glory. Okay, if you started well, and then you turn from him, and this is the warning that he has given to the Galatians. They had received the Spirit. He's very clear about that. He does not call their salvation into question. But what he does do is he says that if you allow yourself to be circumcised, you are a debtor to the entire law. All of it. No rewards for you is what that means. Zero. Okay? Because you've set aside what Christ has done. You started well. You received the Spirit. And now it's set aside, and God cannot reward you for your attitude. Hold hold to the grace of Jesus Christ above all else. Okay. So, um, it's with the authority that he writes as the apostle. Okay, then by the will of God, I said that one. Uh, it was not by his own merits, it was the sovereign decision of God. 
and then I, you know, I also read this one. In his letter to the Romans, he gave a formal declaration. In Galatians, he was short with them. That's what got me off in that rabbit hole, etc. Finally, he adds in the words, and Timothy, our brother. This does not mean that Timothy is participating in the writing of the epistle, but that Timothy is with Paul and sending on his greetings to those in Colossae, as well as being noted in verse 2. Timothy referred to here is certainly the same Timothy to whom two epistles which bear his name are written. Okay, so we know that Timothy is uh, with Paul all the way through. He's with him in the book of Acts. He's with him in uh, uh, the epistles at times, and he also has two epistles written directly to him. All right, Timothy is highlighted here and elsewhere, giving him much credence within the church and setting the stage for him to be recognized as an authority within the church in the future. However, Paul is careful to make him out as a brother and not as an apostle. The term is never applied to Timothy because he did not meet the necessary requirements of being an apostle of Jesus Christ. Only a select group of people were called apostles of Christ. After their deaths, the apostolic age ended. Have a wonderful night. Good to see you. Taking the title of a, I'll read that again. After their deaths, the apostolic age ended, taking the title of apostle of Jesus Christ with them. The last one that we know was alive was John. He was an old, old man. He wrote his, that's why, I don't know if anybody got why I kept saying it all the way through those four act sermons. I sure hope he writes this down someday. I sure hope, I said it like 50 times. The reason why is because he had not written his epistles at the time that Paul, you got that. He didn't, your wife got it. You should have asked her. Yeah. Anyway, so that's why I kept saying that. People probably thought I was being silly. I wasn't. I did not want to take something out of the proper context. So I kept saying, as John told me, as John told me, I sure hope he writes it down, is because those were written later. Yeah. Most of them are believed to have been written well after Paul was executed, 70 AD, 90 AD, whatever, somewhere in that area, depending on, uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, most people want to date the uh, epistles as close to Jesus as possible, but there is an exception, is Revelation, the, uh, the people that replace uh, Jesus, I, I replace the church, the uh, replacement theologians, they want to move the date of Revelation back as far as possible. Now, why would they do that? It's because they believe that they're, they're what you would call praetorists, okay, afterists. There's no more um, uh, prophecy to be fulfilled. And so they say all of that prophecy was fulfilled at the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Well, if he wrote it before the destruction of the temple, that causes them a problem. So they try, it's the only book in the Bible that they'll do this. Oh, we want to back it up as much as possible. And it was written, yeah, that's why, okay. But um, it doesn't matter when he wrote it. The fact is that those things are written about the end times. If you just take Jesus' words and you compare them with what is said in the book of Revelation, Jesus' words in Matthew um, 24 and Mark, uh, what is it, 12 and Luke 21, talking about the Olivet Discourse, it's all speaking about the end times. And as I said, I said it a week or two ago, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are synoptic gospels that are written to who? Jews. To the Jews. They're written, Jesus, well, they're written to everybody. I shouldn't have said it that way, but they are Jesus under the law, fulfilling the law. He's not talking about the church. He's not, now things he says refer to the church that they don't understand, but that's not 
the context. The context is that he is speaking to Israel under the law about matters dealing with the law and matters dealing with their future way, way, way in the future. And if you try to take what he says in those gospels and apply them to your own life, you're gonna have confused theology because you've mixed dispensations. Paul says one thing, Jesus says another, and they don't match. Well, it's because they're not the same context. If you keep the context proper, then you don't have these contradictions. I had somebody, when I did the, um, the uh, thing on the rapture, what was it, about uh, uh, two or three months ago, I did the thing on the rapture, and somebody emailed me and said, Charlie, you're a deceiver. He said, the Sermon on the Mount is speaking to everybody. He's not speaking to the Jews under the law. And just go down to what he says a little further down, where he says, I tell you, if you allow, uh, 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 what is it? Uh, let me uh, let me not misquote it. Um, what were you saying? One tittle or? Yeah, yeah, one jot or tittle. That's yeah. what I'm looking for. Uh, if you allow one jot or tittle to fall from the law, etc. Okay, he's speaking about the law. He's not speaking to us about grace. He's not saying it at all. Let me take you there now. Thank you for getting that. Um, he says here, um, uh, you've heard it said, okay, and you've heard it said, and he's speaking to the Jews. Now, don't get me wrong. The precepts, many of the precepts that he says in the Sermon on the Mount, Paul repeats in Romans 15, okay? That's fine. But when he says these things, he is speaking to Israel under the law. He's not speaking to the church. So let me see if I can find where he says this. Um, uh, you shall love your enemy. I know it's right here somewhere. Uh, five, uh, verse 17. 17. That, that's what I'm looking. That's it. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. As I said about 15 minutes ago, the law was given to who? The Jews and to nobody else. No other group of people on the planet was given the law of Moses. He can't be speaking to the Gentiles. He can't be speaking to the church because by the time the church is introduced, the law is fulfilled. It's done, okay? But the guy comes and he tells me I'm a deceiver because Matthew 5 is written everybody. Well, yeah, it's written everybody, but the context is not for everybody. So anyway, We'll go on. Um, did I read that? Um, yes, I think I did. Uh, no, I didn't. Okay. Oh, I'm up at the top of this. I see I turned the page. Um, it's uh, the apostle of Jesus Christ is Paul and the others designated apostles. John was the last apostle. We went into the rabbit hole and life application. Okay. As Paul wrote, he probably didn't think that we would be reading his word 2,000 years later. But the glorious words in the epistle still resound to this day. It is a letter directed to each person as an individual who is willing to pick it up and read it. Consider the magnitude of this as you read it or truly any portion of scripture. God is writing to you as much as he's writing to anybody else at any time in history. Once again, though, the context may be different. We're not out building arcs today, okay? There's a reason for that. All right, one, two. I don't know how to pronounce Colossi. Colossi, uh, I guess. Colossi. I think that's probably right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, somebody might say Colossi. Some might say Colossi. And I don't know the... I'd have to look at the Greek to know if there's a little oh, thing I up. Okay. I don't know. Go ahead. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossi, 
Okay. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Thank you. It mine has a big space between the two. See that? And so I uh, thought you that thought it was the next I question. thought yeah, okay. So read that again. Uh, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. That's it? Okay, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, and then you look down at the footnote, and you text omits, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So there you go. That's why always read the footnotes, and that's why I want somebody to read something other than the New King James Version, so that we can see these differences. Okay, always read the footnotes. I don't care if you read a single commentary, read the footnotes. Okay, Paul states that the letter is written specifically to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. They are then the initial recipients of this majestic letter of doctrine, and they are to be blessed with having been the first to read the subject matter, which Paul deemed necessary to put into writing for the instruction and edification of those in the church. However, the intent of Paul's letter is certainly not that it would only be read by the Colossians and then secreted away. Rather, the anticipation is that it would be circulated among the churches. Where can we find that? How do we know that? The last chapter. Good girl. Okay, this Rhoda, she knows her Bible. Uh, we'll go there really quickly. I, I don't have the verse, so I'm going to have to look for it. But um, here, now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is also uh, read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. Okay, so there you go. It's a circular letter, and it wouldn't have just gone to those two. It would have gone to other places, and people would have made copies and sent it on. Hence, eventually, uh, we'll stop right there because somebody may be new to the Bible study because it's the book of Colossians, and we want them to understand why there may be differences in these texts. Okay, the Hebrew was done one way. The Hebrew Old Testament has lots of other documents. Don't get me wrong. It's got the uh, Latin Vulgate, which was translated out of the Hebrew. So we can know what the Hebrew said at that time when Jerome did that. Uh, we also had the Samaritan Pentateuch, and we've got the Dead Sea Scrolls, and we've got these other ancient witnesses that will help us know for certain what the original text said as closely as we can get. Okay, But for the most part, the Hebrew text was written very, very methodically. They would go in there and they would write it out. They had certain rituals when they came to the name Yahweh or Yehovah, okay? They would be very precise with everything they did, and then they'd go back and they'd read letter for letter for letter. And if there were any errors, they would throw that away, okay? And so you're dealing with a very precise set of documents. But errors can still creep in, and so what they do is they also have all these other witnesses, as I said, and then you have the Greek translation of it as well, and you've got all these, they can compare and they can say, this is most likely the original here. This is wrong, and here's the reason why. You're like 99.99% sure of what the Old Testament says, okay? In the New Testament, it's a completely different way of getting your uh, Bible in your hand today. What they did is they had a letter, and they said, we need to get this out to people. And so they would just have people that weren't even qualified scribes. They, they were scribes, but they weren't like these guys in Israel. They just make copy after copy after copy, and they were not concerned about the precision that the Hebrews were. They weren't thinking, oh, this is the word of God, and so we're, we've got to be really, really careful with it. They are thinking, this is a letter from Paul, and we need to get people to read it, and so they just made copies and copies. And by having thousands and thousands of copies, you can actually eliminate all of the errors. 
okay? Because you've got this one has this error, this one has this error, this one has this error, but this one and this one don't have this and this one does, we know that that one is wrong there. This one and this one match here, but not here, so we know this one is wrong there. The more copies you have, the easier it is to identify the original in this type of an environment. And we have, at the time I was in college, it was 5,986 copies of the New Testament Greek, okay? Something like that. It was some huge number. It was less than 6,000. But it was a great, great number of uh, copies of Greek translation or uh, uh, texts, okay? Then you also have 14,000 lectionaries, which are commentaries on the New Testament. And they go all the way back to the church fathers. And you can, they said, rebuild the entire New Testament just from those lectionaries missing only 11 verses. The entire New Testament, they can say, we know that this is here, okay? And then along comes, later in the, the game, a copy, which is the Alexandrian text. And it's found in uh, Egypt, okay, Alexandria. And so they say, well, this is the oldest known copy of the New Testament, and so older is better. And you'll get a lot of scholars that will say the most reliable text or texts. And the reason why they do that is because they're older. Just because something is older doesn't mean it's better. Okay, once again, that's a fallacy of thinking. But it does match the New Testament closely, but it's missing things like that. And so which translation is a translation committee going to use? Are they going to use the Byzantine, which was, you know, uh, taken and compiled by a guy named, uh, what was his name, um, uh, Stephanus, not Stephanus, uh, why don't I know this? Um, anyway, it left my mind, he's the guy that did the Textus Receptus. He took all of these things, and I'll remember it in a minute. Um, uh, but anyway, Stephanus is the guy that did the, uh, the chapter, the verse divisions for the uh, 1560 Geneva Bible. He did in 1560, the Geneva Bible was the first one they had that. But uh, I'm not thinking of the guy's name. Somebody is online right now yelling at me. Um, but um, he's the guy, this, this guy is the one that compiled the Textus Receptus. Now, when he did, he added in things that certain people in the church wanted in there. So is that reliable? Is it more reliable than what uh, the Alexandrian has? Nothing in the variations of those texts affects doctrine. There are differences, but guess what? It says right here in this one, it says, um, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and his doesn't have and the Lord Jesus Christ. Guess what? It has it in other areas of the Bible. If you go to another book, it says it. It doesn't affect anything doctrinally, okay, because we have the same doctrine elsewhere in there. Some people say, well, that one drops out the blood, and so that's, well, guess what? They add it in somewhere else. There is always going to be the doctrine you need from either one of these sources. So don't worry about that, but people will quibble over these things, all right? But when it comes to it, we are very, very sure of the contents of the New Testament. And if we're not, what you do is read the footnotes. Always read the footnotes. I looked up the count. It okay. is, you were right, 5,856 of Greek manuscripts. 856, that's yes. right. And then non-Greek manuscripts, 18,000. Oh, that's a lot more because that's Armenian, 14, Latin, and okay. the other Okay, well, there were 14,000 lectionaries, but oh, that's that's the other, yeah, the yes. non-Greek, and then together it's 23,000. 23,000, and then you, okay, so that's those, and then yeah. you've got lectionaries, and you've got all of the, we know the New Testament. We are certain of it. It is, you know, if you look at the, uh, the second most, uh, 
prolific ancient writing. Uh, you know, somebody did this thing one time. They did comparison of all of them. And the things that we teach in college as history, like the Gaelic Wars of Caesar, had like five copies and they've got partials on four of them, okay? And they say, we know this is true. And yet we've got much, much more recent to the events and we've got billions of them. They say, that's not a reliable book. It is the most reliable book in all of antiquity, by far, by, by a, a magnitude of a billion, billion, billion. So don't think that we, don't let people take you down that path. Okay, that's enough of that. That's why we have a difference though in that is because of those. So um, let's see here. Um, uh, why can't I think of that guy's name? The Erasmus. Erasmus, thank you. I also uh, it up. I, just yell it out because it would have been on my mind the whole time. I wasn't yes, sure. I it wasn't was. You were right, okay. Erasmus. Thank you for doing that. Oh, it just—I can't believe I couldn't think of that. Okay, so um, the uh, well, we'll go back here. Um, they are the initial recipients of this majestic letter. I read that. However, the intent of Paul's letter is certainly not that. I read that as well. The Laodiceans. Okay, um, the, this is certain because the letter was copied and analyzed until the time it was finally incorporated into the final canon of scripture. Okay, the anticipation is that it would be circulated among the churches, having copies made and having sessions where the content could be repeated and analyzed. This letter became well known enough to be considered for inclusion in the Bible. And its contents made it rightly selected for that same purpose. Each step of the process was guided by the Holy Spirit to ensure that we have the sure and perfect word of God to refer to. Okay, I'll stop right there. And I said something earlier and I did not explain it, is that we have certain words that Paul uses that are unique to him. We've got words that he uses in certain epistles. But uh, E.W. Bollinger one time sat down and he said, I want to know who the author of Hebrews was, okay? Because, and there's no doubt in Charlie Garrett's mind, if you disagree, that's fine. But in my mind, it is the Apostle Paul. There's no doubt about it. Peter says, the letter that Paul wrote to you, he refers to a letter, and there's only one letter that isn't signed in the New Testament. It's Hebrews. There's all kinds of clues that I put into the introduction of the Hebrews commentary. I'm certain it is Paul. But having said that, E.W. Bollinger went in and he counted all of the words of the New Testament, all these unique words, and when you take Hebrews and add it to Paul's other letters, it comes out to exact numbers every time. It is beautiful to see. There is no doubt that Paul wrote Hebrews, okay? So, uh, that, in my mind, okay, other people have their own doubts. They can be wrong. That's fine. I'm kidding. Anyway, um, so um, uh, it's... The sure and perfect word that God has given us. After his words of verse 1 and the initial words of this verse, Paul now gives the standard greeting which is found in most of his epistles. Grace to you and peace. Grace is unmerited favor. It cannot be earned. This was the common greeting among the Greek people. Grace to you. Peace, however, was and still is the common greeting among the Jews, the Hebrew people. In their language, the word is shalom. This is more than a greeting for quiet or calm. We say peace, baby, and we're thinking of be quiet or whatever. Everything is okay. It is a state of wholeness and completion in all ways. Paul unites the two terms, Jew and Gentile terms, charis and shalom, just as the church is being united between Jew 
and Gentile during this time. This grace precedes the peace because only after receiving the grace of God can a person experience the peace of God. Paul extends this wonderful blessing to them from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a greeting from the eternal God, both the unseen Father and his Son who reveals the Father to us. Rather than being an argument against the divinity of Jesus Christ, it is an argument for it. He is tying the two in as one, Jesus being a member of the Godhead. He is not making some type of great division, but a harmonious blending of the two from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The two are one, just as Jesus said, I and my Father are one, and he went through all of the things that he said uh, concerning uh, his oneness with the Father. And if you go to, I'll just take you there because it came to mind, and it's just something that's worth repeating, is Matthew. I'm going too slow to, we'll be in Matthew in a month if I keep one page at a time, but Matthew 28, and he gives them the Great Commission, and what does he say? He says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name. And when he says it in the Greek, it's in the singular, not the names, the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. All the way through the Bible, there is the concept that Jesus is God. Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament anticipating Christ. But how you can come to Isaiah chapter 9 and read that and say, that's not speaking of God. I don't know who could make that conclusion. Isaiah 9, he sh his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And yet he's speaking about the coming Messiah. How anybody can read that and say, oh, that doesn't mean what it means is literally crazy, okay? Old Testament and new. And then in the book of Zechariah, I mean, I won't go there now, but Zechariah, he has the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in one verse, one verse, okay? There's no doubt about it. Old Testament and new, the deity of Jesus Christ is a concept and it is a precept that is explicitly taught in the Bible, okay? So um, throughout Paul's, I, I see it right here, Throughout Paul's letters, as with, with the entire Bible, the deity of Jesus Christ is a concept and a precept which is on evident display. Now, that's something I did remember from all those years ago, okay? It is the very heart of what God has done for the reconciliation of the people of the world. To God be the glory, right? So God creates a being and he sends it to die for our sins. Where's the glory in that? Right? God himself took the burden upon himself. That is where the glory is. Salvation is of the being that the Lord created. No, salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. If you just read the Bible from the way that the Bible presents these things, there's no doubt that Jesus Christ is God, that the Messiah to come is going to be the Lord God Almighty. No doubt about it, okay? As a side note, some translations, here it is, leave off, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Which is the true original is hard to say. Scholars argue over this, but either way, Christ Jesus is on prominent display throughout the book. When we get down to verse 15 through 20, you, it is all about Jesus and his deity. It's all about Christ, okay? So, his deity is so evident in the book of Colossians that only a person with a presupposition that he cannot be God could find any other interpretation of who he is. It's like people that come to the Bible and say, 
salvation can be lost. You have to come to the Bible with a presupposition. Somebody told you that salvation is not eternal, that you have to earn your salvation. Because if you come to the Bible without ever having read the Bible and just simply read what it says, you'll say, oh, I'm saved forever. It's, it's all the way through the Bible. And people take verses out of context. They pin them on websites and they pin them on blogs all the time that have nothing to do with the issue at hand. I take you to one. I'd like to read this one because it's so common. And if you just listen to it and you say, oh, well, I get it now. But this is one of the most common things to deny that salvation is eternal. And I've, I've heard it a million times. Mm-hmm. It's the what? Um, the, the book of Revelation. And it's in Revelation. Uh, let me see if I can find it here. Uh, da, da, da. It's uh, which one? It's the one where um, do, 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 do. Anyway, I, I can just tell it to you and save you the time, but I hate to do that. I'd rather just read it properly. And it says, um, uh, the, he explains it there. He says it here. And then he says, um, uh, if you don't repent, I, I'm just going to read it because I'm not going to spend all day doing this. But he says, if you don't repent, I'm going to come and take your lampstand. Okay, everybody know that one? Yep. Okay. So you can lose your salvation, right? Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to the church. He's not speaking to an individual. He's speaking to the church. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you see what I'm saying? If you, if you keep it in its proper context, he's not speaking about that at all. And in fact, he says, there are those who are uh, worthy. They will walk with me dressed in white. Mm-hmm. But when he says that he will come and take your lampstand, he says to the church at blank, Ephesus or Sardis or Smyrna or whatever. It's right here in front of me because it's only a couple letters. Two and there's, one. What? Two, one, Revelation, two, two Revelation 2, verse 1. Okay, no, that's where he's explaining that. it. That's where he's explaining it. But it's the lampstands, and it says, um, uh, my, my whatever. Okay, anyway, it's right there. It would take you two minutes to find it, but I'm, not, I'm talking while I'm doing this. So if you find it, let me know. Anyway, it's very clear he's speaking to the church. He's addressing the church. There are times where he addresses individuals, and he lets you know that in the letter. But when he's writing to a church and he says, if you don't repent, I'm going to come and take your lampstand, he's speaking to the church because the lampstand is what, it's the symbol that says this is a functioning church. Okay? Anyway, um, okay, so there you go. If you read the Bible without presuppositions and without being told verses that are taken out of context, you will see that salvation is eternal. Otherwise, you're going to believe that you can lose your salvation. You're going to spend the rest of your life trying to earn what you already possess, okay? Uh, And as I say, week after week, God's decrees are eternal. God does not speak a decree and change his mind. God's decrees are eternal. If you look at Israel as the template, it's very clear because Israel's salvation, their national salvation, is simply a template of our individual salvation. And God said that he is going to keep Israel and he has kept Israel. I'll tell you this, if Israel ever ceases to exist, you can lose your salvation and you can throw your Bible away. I'll tell you that right now. Okay. It's a promise that... It's a promise that will not be broken ever. Okay. Never again will they. That's right. Never again. That, yeah. That's exactly right. We went through that this week when right. you, you brought that up like five or eight times. It says it never again, never again. And when he says it, it is always in relation to Israel, God's covenant keeping with them. Never again. Okay. So um, let's see here. Um, yeah. Life application. In order to understand God, one must know Jesus Christ. 
And one cannot understand Jesus Christ unless he knows his Bible. You cannot know Christ apart from the Bible. There's nothing about him. There's like two sentences outside of the Bible that are written about Jesus. And it would be like reading about, you know, somebody that's in a temple in, in Macedonia. You just read a line and you go on. You would have no reference of who Jesus is at all. If you... Two five. Two five. Okay, I'm going to read that right now just because you... No, I'm not, you read it because I've already lost the page. Okay. No, I got it right here. I just turned to it. Two five. Remember there... Okay, let me read you. Two... To the angel of the church at Ephesus write. And then five, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent, do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. He's speaking to the church. He's not speaking to an individual. He's speaking to the church. Your lampstand will be removed. And as I said elsewhere, right in the seven letters, he says, yet there are some of you in Sardis, I think it's Sardis, uh, who are worthy. They will walk with me dressed in white. He's talking to a church, and then he speaks about individuals. Okay, context. Context, context, context. One, three. Do we have time? Yes, we have time. Oh, one, three. Yes. <laughs> See, Jim is... He's alert. You gotta, you get, gotta get on it, buddy. Okay. <laughs> we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always with you. Okay, this one says always for you. That's the first difference in all three of the verses, with the exception of dropping out the and the Lord Jesus Christ. Every word has been the same, so they've been plagiarizing each other. Okay, <laughs> not really. They're they're just very basic words, and there's only one way you can really give them. Okay, we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ praying always for you. Okay, this is a greeting which even if slightly amended for the occasion, is common to Paul's letters. In some letters the stress is on the thanks. In others it is on the prayers. However, when he wrote his letter to the Galatians he noticeably skipped over such a general sentiment. He had greater concerns with them that he had to deal with. He wasn't in the mood for giving a lot of happy salutations and greetings. He wanted to get them straight and he wanted to do it right away. As a matter of fact, how quickly did he do that? Galatians chapter 1. This is how quickly he got into telling them this. Come on, Charlie. Yes, exactly. That's exactly right. Um, hang on a sec. You know what? I went the wrong way and I do that. Okay, so here it is. He got through the first couple of verses, he talks about Jesus and the marvel and the he might deliver, and then immediately, verse 1-6, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. And then he goes on and he says about if anybody comes to you and tells you another gospel, let him be accursed. And he says it includes himself. If I are an angel from heaven, anybody, anybody does this, let him be accursed. He went right at the meat of the letter at the beginning with them. He had no time to mess around. And so here he's got time to introduce the subject, to give greetings, and then to bring you into, I'm not kidding, verses 115 through 20 are just they're marvelous. And you can tell already, uh, somebody emailed me, uh, we were talking this past week, uh, one of my friends who was talking about how early the uh, heresies started to get into the church. And he said, look, they, they were Arrhenius and these guys were arguing against heresies like within the first 150 years of the church. And I said, no, 
within the first years of the church. As soon as Paul had written his letter, he has to write another letter because there's another heresy cropping up. And at the very earliest days of the church, heresies were creeping in. And that's why these letters are written, is because it was to avoid the heresies which needed to be addressed. Most of the letters do that, and this one does as well, Colossians. So if you can remember that, this is something that we have to be on guard for always. And there's always a new heresy coming up. Like I said, hyperdispensationalism comes along within the past recent time, and I know I'm not saying that uh, John Darby comes up with something, and that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that that is a heretical doctrine to say that there are two gospels. There's one gospel, okay? There are two groups of people that are being addressed, and then there's the third thought, which is completely separate, which hyperdispensationalism does not consider national Israel. There is a difference between individual Jews and national Israel, and that's where their fundamental flaw goes. I'm, I, I just I feel bad for people that are caught in this. It's maddening to me, but they are, and they're the ones that are going to have to stand before the Lord and justify why they went following that type of teaching. Anyway, uh, I'll tell you something right now. I will give this away. I hate to give stuff away, but when we get to Joshua 3, 4, and 5, it will refute beautifully. This typology of what is being presented will refute those type of heresies. All kinds of heresies. All kinds of heresies will be dispelled from Joshua 3, 4, and 5. It is amazing what is in those three chapters. I haven't gotten to six yet. Can't tell if, uh, you know, what's coming. I'll do that. I'll start it on Monday. Anyway. Um, Charlie, doesn't Jude and Peter already warn too that there are going to be wolves coming? Absolutely. In? All of them. Jude, Peter. All, that's, they're all writing this. Okay, and then of course you get the people that try to divide up Peter and Paul when Peter says, Paul, our beloved brother, and then he equates what Paul says as scripture. Right there, he's calling it scripture. So you're absolutely right, right from the very beginning. Okay, um, here he notes that he, and uh, I better go back, uh, others in it, uh, we're reading one, three, yes. Uh, when he wrote his letter, I read that. Okay, here he notes that he and Timothy gave thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. His prayers are lifted to God, who is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. As always, this in no way diminishes the deity of Christ, but rather highlights it. There is the human Jesus, and there is the Christ of God. He is the Lord Jesus Christ, who issues from God the Father. It is to God the Father that their thanks are directed at this point. The reason for this specific wording will be realized as he continues on with the epistle. It is a letter which highlights, it highlights the deity of Christ in a most unique way. Well, I just lost my place when I pulled that. There it is. In their thanks, he then notes that they are praying always for you. Paul's idea of praying without ceasing, which he penned to those in Thessalonica, is evident in words such as these to the Colossians. Wherever the thought of one of his beloved churches came to mind, he and Timothy would utter forth a prayer to God on its behalf. When they talked about one of the churches, they would probably issue forth a quick prayer, both of thanks and petition for them. To them, praying was certainly a normal extension of their regular lives and conversations. They would just simply talk to each other about the church. They'd say, you know, I wonder how, you know, whatever, Sergiopolis is doing up in, in uh, Colossae. And he said, well, let's stop and pray, you know, and they just have a quick prayer for him. And uh, y you can tell by the way he writes these things. And, you know, 
If what he wrote, and I say this quite a few times in the commentaries, he'll write to somebody and he'll say something. And if what he wrote was not true, the people that he's writing to are the ones that would know. They just say, well, he never said that, mm -hmm. right? He's writing to the people, he's not making it up. And when he says that Timothy and I are doing this, praying for you always, Timothy is one of the guys that's reading it. He's probably carrying it to the church. If it's not true, Timothy would say, I don't know, what do you, you know, Paul, he really lost it last night. You know it's true. It's self-validating when they say these things and the addressees are all right there and you don't have any word, any word from antiquity to say that what Paul said or what Jesus said or what John said or, isn't true. You haven't got any word on that because if there were things that weren't true, people would have written it down and said, I'm attaching this with a paperclip to this document. And there aren't any. We know that what they say is true. Okay, we got a life application, we'll be done. Life application, God already knows the end from the beginning. His plan is also complete in his mind. Despite this, we should not have a fatalistic view of life where we ignore prayers. God instead figures our prayers into the plan, just as our free will calling on Jesus is figured into the plan. If we don't receive Jesus, we will not be saved. Likewise, prayers that are not uttered are not heard. God's foreknowledge of all things outside of time factors in our actions within the stream of time. And we need to remember that. We need to hold fast to that, and we need to understand that that is true. And so when people say, well, you don't have free will in your salvation because uh, God already knows whether you'll be saved or not. You say, well, then why are you praying? And I'll say, well, I pray because that's what the Bible tells me to do. Well, if God already knows it, then why would you do that? That would be the stupidest thing on the planet. You're wasting your time. He's already decided, okay? It's the same logic from prayer as it is from receiving Jesus. Exact same logic. So don't let people fool you with these things. Understand? They what? Verse 4. We're not doing 4, buddy. It's time to go. If I go over that one hour and a half, that causes Mike a lot of extra work because he's the one that does the podcast. I never go over an hour and a half. That is it. I will cut it short if I know we can't fit it in the next time, but never. Because I rehearsed it. Oh, he, he's been rehearsing. <laughs> I'm glad you did. He's, he's catching on. He's, yeah, remember that for next week. I'll ask you about Tuesday. Like, right when you're in the middle of editing a video, I'll say, um, uh, do you remember that verse that you're supposed to remember? It'd be like, oh <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this precious word. Thank you for what Christ has done for us. Thank you that we have the surety of eternal salvation. We have the, the assurance that this book is what it claims to be. And even if there are small differences in there, it does not harm our theology. Lord, you have given us these things so that we can seek you out, so that we can try to determine what is correct and to know in our hearts that we are following the right path. Thank you for that, Lord. You're so good to us to do these things and to give us uh, men of God all around the world that are searching out those texts and trying to determine every precise letter so that we will follow you in the way that you really intend. But we know enough to know the simple gospel, that we're saved by faith through grace, and that is the gift of God that comes from you, and it is not by our works. Thank you, because if it was, none of us would be saved. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.
All right, let me back this up again. Say goodbye to the folks online. Hope you're going to